great to be back in our new building. It was really cool this morning, and both services, some of you saw this, we have a lot of children come here, over 200 children, and once a month now, we're having their own time of worship, now that we have that bigger room over there. So if you get to peek your head in there, it's just neat for them to be learning songs about the Lord. This morning, we're reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I want to remind you that you can learn to read the Bible, but you have to read it in its context, saying, all right, this was written to a group of people at a certain time. What was going on then? And then how do I apply it to my life? So you don't jump around like a Ouija board just picking verses out. We read verse by verse through the Bible. You start with a book, you find the background, and then you, you seek to see how God uses the Bible to transform us. So we're, we're calling our study of Timothy the blueprint for the church because in the middle of the book, Paul says, these things have I written so you learn how to conduct yourself in the church, in the household of God. And there was, a, there was a setting that was taking place. And it's really important to see that in the background. In the background, there was a, a, a lot of these little house churches in Ephesus. And they were being infiltrated by false teachers. People who weren't even saved, who were distorting Christianity. And that's why right now, we're not the only ones meeting together. But many, many people right now in America are meeting under the guise of Christianity. And they're talking about nonsense. The preachers are spouting off stuff that's not in the Bible. We're not the only ones that have it right. But any church that has gotten away from the sound preaching of the Bible has lost their way. And you can mark this down. Once people leave Christianity in their beliefs, they're going to leave it in their behavior. And we can see this going on as well in our culture. So what Paul's doing is he's writing to Timothy and saying, you've got to rebuke and correct these false teachers. And he's going to call them out this morning as he talks about how they're just doing it to make money. And so that leads Paul, by the Spirit, to talk about wealth and about how Christians should view money. But he also is going to talk in this passage about how Christians should view work and how they should view their work. Whether you're a student or an employer, an employee, Christians should have a worldview of work that's very different from how unbelievers look at work. They hate their job and whatever. But third, he wants to talk about what really matters in life. It's so easy to just be misled and lose our way and think that this is what matters and this will make us happy. And we come back to the Bible and God's going, hello, recalculating, this is what matters. Yesterday I was in the parking lot at Walmart and I saw a car going the wrong way, right? And it's always like weird when you're going the wrong way in a one-way thing, right? Because everybody's like, yeah. think of that as you look around in, in life, the world is going the wrong way on a one-way street. Jesus is the one way. He said, no one comes to God but through me. But most of the world is doing it their way, thinking their way, and we don't even realize how we engage with it without realizing it. So we come to Scripture and God says, don't be conformed to the world, be transformed. So this morning we're going to talk about how we should view work, wealth, and what matters. Let's pray. Lord, today as we study this passage... May you cause us to listen, to not just hear it, but to apply the word to our lives and to be transformed as we encounter the Lord Jesus and his gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Most of what I'm going to talk about this morning has to do with our motivations. It's not just what you do, but why you do it. And so the first point we're going to look at in verses 1 and 2 is that Christians are to work with godly motivations. If we can get that outline point up there. Christians are to work with godly motivations. We all go to work, I hope. 
unless you're on unemployment. But even like if you don't have a job outside the home, even if you're a, a homemaker or whatever you're doing, why do you work? And what's your attitude as you're working? So let's look at verse 1 where Paul says, Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Now you go, Pastor, how do you get work out of that? Well, number one, slavery was very, very prevalent in the first century in the Roman culture. It was everywhere. There were more slaves than freemen. Slavery at that time was very, very different from what we, what we know of, say, the terrible blemish on, a, on American society when we had slavery. It was very different, okay? But many people, as a result of war or poverty or many other reasons, became slaves. Some of them often voluntarily because that was like a way to stay alive. And at the time when Paul was advancing the gospel, the primary concern of Paul was to establish Christ-honoring churches in these communities around the world. It wasn't necessarily to reform slavery at that moment. So when the Bible talks about slavery, it's not like God saying, this is a good thing, I endorse this, I think we should have that. But we sometimes have to realize that Jesus and Paul were not in a setting or a culture where it was as conducive or timely to address the wrongness of slavery. So it wasn't just like, let's drain the swamp and we'll all vote. But, but the point is, the principles that we could take out of this is to say, hey, as a Christian, I am under people who are over me, unless you're the boss. And even then, you have to think about your attitude at your work. So what we're going to learn is that God wants us to have a godly attitude at work. Here's why. The end of verse 1, so that our doctrine will not be spoken against. So the first point I want to make about that is that our motivation, and let's look at this, our motivation at work should be to attract people to the gospel. So Paul says, hey, treat your, your master or your boss respectfully. Why? So that you make Christianity attractive. Paul's going to say this on a number of occasions. So think about this. People you work with, they notice your attitudes. They notice whether you're helpful. They notice your speech. They notice your work ethic. And so God's saying, listen, as you think about, even as a student or a worker or an employee or whatever, think about the goal of, of doing it as unto the Lord is so that Christianity is attractive. That people go, hey, I want what that person has. Look how they handle criticism. Look how they, they, they show helpfulness to others. They seem to care. So Paul says, that's why I want you to do this. But then he comes to a very interesting analogy. He goes, but what if your boss is a Christian? Now, this is a really interesting phenomenon because any Christian business owner will tell you this, that when Christians come to them for business, frequently they have an underlying assumption because I'm a Christian and you're a business owner, you should give me a better deal. You should charge me less, right? When in fact, what Paul's going to do is he's almost going to turn it around and say, maybe we should look at it the other way around. Maybe we should go, hey, if, I, if I'm going to get somebody to work, I'm glad to be helping out a fellow Christian. But the irony is, think about this culture. Remember, Paul talked about elders. It was possible that in these churches, they had slaves who were elders. 
right? It wasn't like they said, you can't be an elder if you're a slave. So what would it be like if you were an elder in the church, but you were a slave, but your master was also a Christian? So when you gathered on Sunday morning, talk about the tables being turned. And so Paul says, well, what if you do have a believing master? Look at verse 2. Those who have believers as their masters, don't be disrespectful to them because they're brethren. Ah, I'm not going to work today. He'll understand. He's a Christian. I was really spending some time in prayer. You know, he's like, no, don't do that. But serve them all the more. Why? Because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. So our attitude about our work is, hey, if in any way this could bless another Christian, that's really cool. Now, one of the coolest things about this passage is the word benefit. It's a word that's used like as an act of kindness, okay? That word would not be used of a slave's work for his master, right? You wouldn't say to, to, to a slave, hey, make sure you do lots of um, work because that's your act of kindness. Most people don't view their work as an act of kindness to benefit their employer. But Paul's saying, as a Christian, two things should motivate you as you work. One, make the gospel attractive. And then the second point is, another motivation in our outline would be to bless believers, to bless fellow believers of the gospel. So, all right, we're going to come back and talk about that, maybe do some analysis at the end. Like, okay, let me think about what people think about at work. But what that does is it leads Paul to transition to the whole concept of these false teachers and their attitude towards wealth and work. So he says to Timothy, teach and preach these things. Like I just did. Like these aren't God's suggestions. Like if you feel like it, if, if you like your job, be good to your boss. This is the word of God. And he's saying, do something about it. But now in verse 3, he begins to talk about the second thing we want to talk about, and that is that false teachers are driven by ungodly motivations. So God says, let your work be guided by godly motivations to make Christ look good, to bless other Christians. But he says, I want you to know that people choose to be religious leaders often for very ungodly motivations. Now, the, the motivation is at the end of the passage. He says, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. I had a man say to me one time, so you're a pastor? It's good money and the cloth. I'm like, what? But that's how a lot of people view Christianity. And I fear that as Christians, sometimes we don't think discerningly enough. Like Christianity was never started as a way to make money. So I sometimes wonder when Jesus is like, really? You, you, you have Christian bookstores with Jesus underpants and Jesus mints and this and that, at some point you got, and I'm not saying every Christian bookstore is just doing it to get money, but we have to be discerning and say, Christian concerts, Christian entertainment, but particularly the place that I'm most concerned is preachers on television that are standing up and saying, hey, listen, give your money, no matter what they're talking about, in five minutes, they're always talking about money, send your money, and they're selling a lie that so many people are silly, they're not thinking, because what are they telling you? They're going, God blesses you when you give money. If you really want to be healthy and have a, a lot of stuff, give me your money because that's how you get blessed. So here's my address. Now send me your money. And people are writing checks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, if they really believe that, they would be saying, 
People get blessed by giving their money away. So send me your address so I could send you my money. But we just, no, no, that's just, here you go, right? So Paul's going to describe these false teachers. In chapter 1, he said, they want to teach the Bible, but they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Well, why would they do that then? Because of the prestige and the financial gain. And so look how he describes them. The first thing is that they have godless beliefs and behavior. Look with me in verse 3. He says, If anyone advocates or teaches or holds to a different teaching and doesn't agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. It's amazing how many people in America go, I love the teachings of Jesus. Do unto others, you know, golden rule. We say, do you, do you agree with everything he said? Well, no, I mean, when he said, I'm the way, the truth, no one comes to God but through me. I don't agree with that. Remember Lewis's famous quote? If he wasn't God and who he said he was and everything he said is true, then he's a liar, a lunatic, and a poached egg. But it's amazing how many people call themselves Christians. They, they use phrases like, I'm an open Christian. You can't just pick and choose the things of Jesus that you agree with. If you don't agree with the words of God, the Bible says you're conceited and you know nothing. I once had a lady actually put down on her visitor card. She wasn't, wasn't at this church, a former church I pastored. Keep preaching, Pastor Tom. You've almost found the truth. Now, you can imagine how that sat with me. <laughs> so I, I felt the necessity to meet with her and her friend. And she said, I used to believe just the Bible, but now I Christ myself. I'm like, hmm. So let me ask you a question. And, I, and I'm thinking of this verse as I ask her. Do you agree with everything Jesus said? She goes, well, no, I used to, but not anymore. I said, could I read you a verse from the Bible? If you don't agree with the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're conceited and understand nothing. You allowed to say that? I didn't say it. God did. Right? And so I said, I want to urge you to reconsider what you're saying because you've become what the Bible calls an apostate. You've fallen away from the faith. But you can come back. If you repent of that and come back to the Bible. But notice that not only does it affect beliefs, but it also affects behavior. Because this is maybe even more scary. The words of Jesus and the doctrine that conforms to godliness. There are too many people that sit in church Sunday after Sunday. They read the Bible. They listen to podcasts. And they live ungodly lives. And anything short of a transformed, obedient life to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're kidding ourselves. The Bible says if you're not doing what the Word says, you are deceiving yourself. And so as Christians, I have to go, wow, this is how Paul identifies Paul's teachers. They have wrong beliefs and ungodly behavior. And as a Christian, I'm not studying the Bible as an end in itself to go, I've got all my doctrine figured out. I'm studying the Bible so I can know doctrine so that it leads to a godly, Christ-like spiritual growth in my life. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this study this fall called How People Change. It's really exciting. There's over 200 people signed up right now. There's still room to get on board. Sunday night, Tuesday night, there's one on Wednesday, and I think Thursday morning. Too. But all the stuff's out there. If you're not on board with that, we'd love to have you join us for that. But notice how Paul continues to describe these false teachers. They have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, 
abusive language, and evil suspicions. Can you imagine in the context of teaching Christianity that you're arguing and fighting with people? You're slandering them, saying wrong things about them, constant friction between the men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth. So remember, in chapter 3, said Paul says, elders must be men who are not greedy for money. Elders must be men who are not argumentative, but gentle, holding to the word of God. Imagine what these meetings look like with these guys fighting and arguing. You're stupid. You don't know nothing about the Bible. Don't listen to him. He's a jerk, slandering one another, constant friction between men of depraved minds who at the end of the day are just doing it to make money, and now it's time for the offering. Now, I want to say this, that I'm not embarrassed that we take an offering or we're going to talk about money. You don't go to the other extreme and go, don't talk about money at all, but teach people how to give, why to give. What's, our, what's the Bible teaching us as to our motivation? So, we've seen that, number one, we're to work with godly motivations. False teachers have ungodly motivations. Third, we need to, to consider that godliness with contentment should be our motivation. So Paul goes, they got this part right. Godliness is valuable. The part they messed up on is the fact that godliness with contentment, this would be the fourth point if we can get that up there. Godliness with contentment should be our motivation. Okay? Or I'm sorry, yeah, 6 through 10. All right, now think about this. He says in verse 6, and we'll go to 6 through 8. He says, now godliness is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. Now, let me remind you what godliness is. Godliness is not a virtue that we're born with. Godliness is a virtue that we're bankrupt of. The Bible actually describes all humans as ungodly. We are born ungodly. doesn't mean we're murderers. We're just ungodly. We're disconnected from God, we're not like God, and we're not glorifying and living for God. But in the, in the Bible, there's this great message of God's grace. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, okay? So you don't become godly or pursue godliness as a way to get into heaven. You come to God and you go, God, I'm ungodly. I see it in the Bible, I see it in myself, and I repent of that. I know I'm ungodly. Would you forgive me? And he goes, of course, because Christ died for you. So if you have not yet been forgiven of your ungodliness, what I'm about to say does not apply to you because you don't pursue godliness as a means to get to heaven. You pursue godliness because you are forgiven and on your way to heaven. And that's a big difference. So God wants you to be godly. And it won't happen by accident. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, discipline yourself. For the purpose of godliness. In other words, if you're not reading your Bible, praying, trying to obey God, giving, sharing, joining fellowships, and serving the Lord, you'll never be godly. But you don't do that to get to heaven. So, having said that, Paul says godliness is a means of gain. You and I should want to be godly. It's very valuable. It's profitable. But he says it has to be accompanied by contentment. Now, what exactly is contentment? The Greeks understood this because it could be translated as self-sufficient. But I don't think the Bible teaches that contentment is self-sufficient. Contentment is being satisfied that if I have God, I have everything I need. 
And that's very different from just sticking your jaw out like a, like a stoic and going, let it happen. I'm self-sufficient. So when Paul describes godliness, he says, or contentment, he says this. Now think about this. He says, here's what contentment looks like. We have brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Now, the way that's translated, we shall be content, could also be translated, we should be content. In other words, it's a commandment. Much like when God says, you, you shall not steal. That, in some New Testament passage, it could be translated, you, you will not steal. But it's kind of like when we say to somebody, you will not do that, right? So God's not saying, hey, we're all content, or man, we should, but we're not. He's saying, be content with what you have. Oh, that's easy, right? Somebody once said, I figured out how to want everything I have, or have everything I want. I can have anything I want, just want what I already have. Oh yeah, that's easy, right? There's a reason why one of the Ten Commandments is don't covet. Don't desire your neighbor's wife, his house, his possessions. So God exposes the fact that because we're sinful, there's something about us that wants what we can't have, and, and, it, and it pops up like whack-a-mole in very twisted ways. Oh, if only I had that spouse. If only I had that house. If only I had that car or that health, or if only I looked like them. And so Paul says, stop and think about it. When it comes to wealth and possessions, all we really need is food and covering. The word covering here can be clothes and a roof over your head. And we all know people in third world cultures, when we go there on missions trips, we're like, these people are way more happy than us. How do they do that? I like how the author of Hebrews said this. You might want to write this verse down. Hebrews 13 says this, let your way of life be free from coveting and the love of money. But then he says this, because Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So you see what he's saying? He's not just saying, suck it up and stop wishing you didn't have what you have. Or you want more. But realize that if Jesus is all you have, he's all you need. Now we're all learning that. I'm not a graduate of the school of contentment. Neither was Paul. Paul said in Philippians 4, I've learned to do without. I've learned the secret of contentment because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So it's not so much that you just will yourself like, I'm going to stop wanting that. You look away to Christ and you go, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. And our minds are renewed as we realize that all we need is Christ. Roof over our head and some food to eat. Everything else could come and go. And that's why Jesus said, don't build on on sinking sand, wealth and possessions and loved ones, they can be taken away from us. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So, this leads Paul to say, let's talk about motivations. Now, I, I have to put out a warning here. This flies in the face of Shark Tank. Okay? This flies in the, in the face of American capitalism. Go for it. It's the land of opportunity. But let's look what God says in the Bible. Those who want to get rich. And then look down at verse 10. He's going to talk about longing for money. If, you know, when I watch Shark Tank, is this how you watch it? I'm so happy for them. I'm so glad that they just made a million dollars. Never crosses my mind. Like, I want to do that, you know. What could I invent, right? 
But he says, if you want to get rich, if you long for it, if that's your goal in life, and this flies up because this is American dream. Everybody, come on, man, go for it. He goes, if that's your goal, mark this down, that you will put yourself into a very difficult place as a Christian, and likely you're going to end up falling on your own sword. By the end of reading this passage, as one commentary said, who would want to get rich after reading God's words about this? And for some of you, this is a whole, like, i got to tear down my whole worldview and start over. Those who want to get rich, they're going to fall into temptations and a snare and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, now notice he doesn't say, the King James says, is the root of all evil. It's probably not a good translation. It's better to translate it, it's a root of... <clears throat> All sorts of evil. Not every evil comes from a love of money, but a whole bunch of it does. In fact, you want to do an exercise, take a newspaper or watch the news. Every time you see a crime or something that is evil, right, see if there's a money trail. So often, chase the money trail and you'll see where it all started, right? So, once a Christian begins to long for money, because he's talking about Christians here. He says, Christians who long for money wander from the faith. These are not godless pagans. He's talking about people who have already professed Christ, been born again and baptized and they're following Christ. And he goes, yeah, well, you start chasing money, you're going to leave the faith. It's more than likely you'll leave the faith. And we all have to wrestle with that. So, for example, a man came to me in one of the former churches I pastored down in Texas. He said, Pastor, he said, I just got offered this awesome job. I'll be making, I forget if it was 10 or 20 grand more. He says, but, but I have to work on Sundays, so I can't come to church anymore. And then I know I'm involved with Awana clubs on Wednesday nights, and I have to work Wednesday night. So I'm kind of wrestling, because we could really use the money, and I could really advance my family, but I won't be able to come to church anymore. What, what, what do you think I should do, Pastor? No, no, you're not pinning that one on me. <laughs> You got to make that decision. But is that hard to imagine? Some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. What kind of harmful desires? Well, to make money, you got to work like a beast usually. And when you work like a beast, something's got to give, right? Like your marriage, your kids. Not to say if you're working hard, you know, you're way off. But think through your integrity. Man, if, if I'm honest about how much I made and I put down on my taxes, you start getting greedy with your stuff. I can't afford to give to God. The kids got to go to college. You start stockpiling. And you can just see the slippery slope of saying, really? And so some of you young people that are still choosing a career, don't choose a career on the basis of how much money you can make. And we, you're all out there going, oh, brother, preach it, man. Money doesn't make you happy. But if I could peel back your face, you, it would probably say, but I'd like to find out the hard way. Right? We all are like that. I know they're not happy as they're blinging along in their 60,000 cars. And, you know, I'm not happy. Right? There's some temporary pleasure that money gives. But you got to think big picture. What's my motivation? And is there a chance that I've been confused in my pursuits to, to get the better car, the better house, and the lifestyle that we live has caused me to lose my way with Christ because it's danger, dangerous and destructive to pursue wealth. So at the end, we're going to learn that Jesus is going to talk about what really matters. 
Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, Beware against all forms of coveting and greed, for a man's life does not consist of possessions. So, as Paul has addressed this idea of godliness and being content, he then, somebody said, why just skip over verses 11 to 16? Because I'm going to do them next week. But I figured, you know what? While we're on money, let's jump down. Because Paul came back to this. Maybe the Holy Spirit reminded him. There's something else you need to address here. If you're wealthy, don't feel guilty for being wealthy. There's nothing sinful about being wealthy. But the question is, how did you get wealthy? And what are you doing with your wealth? Man came into Karen's chapel one day and he started passing out tracts. And it said, if you own a home, you're sinning. Because Jesus said in the Gospels, go sell all that you have and follow me. That's what the Bible calls twisting scripture. The Bible doesn't say if you're a Christian and you're wealthy, sell everything you have. Here's what it says. And by the way, as you think about what does it mean to be rich? In America, we're like in the top 1% of the world, right? So in a certain way, maybe all of us are rich. But then even as we look around, don't think, well, I'm not a billionaire. This doesn't apply to me. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Rich people are not necessarily all proud, but a lot of them are. Why? Well, it's just a sense to foolishly think you're better than others. So please, don't feel guilty if God's blessed you. Just be careful. Don't look down on people who have less than you. Even if you worked hard for it and earned it, soundly and well. Number two, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Now, when you think about what it means to fix your hope on something, it's where you find your happiness. It's where your heart is. It's what you think about. It's what you trust in. It's what you believe is most important in life. So this is why Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know why? Because when you're rich, you don't think you need God. What do I need God for? If I'm sick, I'll go to the Mayo Clinic and pay cash. If I'm lonely, I'll buy friends. If I'm bored, I'll get more toys. If I'm fearful, I'll build bigger walls and hire more security guards. What do I need God for? And so I have to realize that everything in life other than the Lord Jesus Christ is uncertain. Not just riches. The Bible talks about how your riches can fly away. It wasn't that long ago that the stock market crashed and the depression and the early 1900s, and a lot of people killed themselves because their whole life was built on their stuff. But you know what? Not just the uncertainty of riches, but the reality is everything's uncertain. My, I could die today. Your loved ones, it's, it's an uncertainty. And God reminded me this this week. My youngest grandson, who's two, is severely allergic to milk. He drinks soy milk. I gave him milk by accident. I almost killed him. That's, that's what the doctor said. He'd be rushed to St. Mary's from their emergency room by ambulance down to CHOP, right? And you talk about being brought low. I mean, I just wept as much as when my mother died. I mean, I was brought low. But I was reminded that the Bible says our life is but a vapor. It appears today and it's gone tomorrow. Don't boast about tomorrow. Don't, don't, don't build your life on, if I don't have this person, I can't live. Nothing in life is certain but Jesus. 
And so he says, build on me, trust in me, fix your hope on me, live for me. And so instead, Paul gives some practical instructions. If you're wealthy, he goes, then here's what I want you to do. Do good. And many of you are doing good. Some of you probably, God speaking to you, say you could do a lot more good. Stop stockpiling so much. You don't need that much. Instruct them to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. Because as you're doing that, as you're, as, you're, as you're seeing your wealth as a stewardship and you're sharing it with others, God says, here's what you're doing. Two things. You're storing up a treasure of a good foundation for the future. You're investing in eternity and you're going to be rewarded for that. But secondly, he goes, you're finding out what really matters. You're taking hold of that which is life indeed. If you're not living for the Lord and sharing your stuff, you're just going through the motions. And I guarantee you that in your deep heart of hearts, you're not happy. Because the only way to find happiness is to live for Christ. And to have that living water that only he can give. And so why do we waste so much time? Real life comes from living for God and giving for God. That's awesome. That's, that's a blessing. And I'm preaching to me too. I'm not like, you bad sinners. Now, it'd be fun to say, okay, let's go home now because it's a little convicting. But remember, the doctrine is supposed to conform us to godliness. So we're going to close with some questions. Question number one. Let's look at our outlook on work and wealth. It should be driven by godly motivation. What might your coworkers, or, or if you're a student, what might your fellow students, or you're, if you're just a housewife that's working in the house, you're at the gym or hanging out with your girlfriend, what would your coworkers or employees think about Christianity based on your speech at work? How about your work ethic? How about your attitudes at work? Your complainer, or if everybody's bad-mouthing the boss, you're like, yeah, he's a... In other words, are you a jerk at work? Right? How about your integrity at work? See, Paul says, do this so the gospel. Think about your work as this wonderful place to serve the Lord, to do it as unto Christ. What about your relationships with the opposite sex? Do you demonstrate Christian purity? How about this one? Your helpfulness or concern for others. You're like, yo, man, I don't mess with anybody. They don't mess with me. I just do my job. Oh. You know, that matters. Remembering people's name. Hey, how's it going? Just engaging with other people, even if you work with Christians. It's really, really a, a great reminder that my work is something I'm doing for the Lord and can have a profound impact. It's awesome when I see people come in and say, hey, this is my buddy from work. Wow, your buddy from work actually came to church with you? Some of you are going, man, if I ever invited my people to work, from my work to church, they'd be like, are you kidding me? I wouldn't go to a funeral with you. You're like, whoa, what did I do, right? All right, question number two. What changes, apologies, or differences might the Holy Spirit be leading you to make in regard to your work? You're like, oh, my, my wife really needs to hear this, pastor, or... Oh, my cousin, I hope they're not. So, and I'm going to go tell the other Christian guy I work with, he needs to... No, what's the Lord telling you about your work? Are you doing it for the Lord? Are you doing it to be a testimony? Are you doing it to bless people? I need to hear this too. All right, let's keep going. How about this? You're like, oh, pastor, listen, man, I study the Bible. I'm in two small groups. I listen to nine podcasts. I'm in a Bible study. And I'm going, great. Now, 
How's that been working for you? Has your coming to church, studying the Bible, attending small groups, listening to podcasts or Christian speakers or personal devotions pointed you to Christ and resulted you in becoming more godly and like Christ? You know what really saddens me? I know people that really know the Bible well, but they're not really nice. They're judgmental. They have anger issues. Or they're selfish or self-righteous. So this isn't just saying, do you not get drunk and curse? It's saying, has the Bible, has your studies of the Bible, this is why we're doing how people change. Has your studies of the Bible resulted in transformed attitudes? My heart breaks. Many of you are struggling deeply in your marriage. I get it. Marriage is a lot of hard work. But the gospel shows up there if you let Jesus be Lord of your marriage. And the Holy Spirit will help you in all of our struggles. And so if I'm angry and selfish and nasty and lustful, I'm not becoming more godly. That's the goal, to become a loving, vibrant Christian. And Jesus doesn't say, ah, I can't do that with you. You're too much of a mess. How about this one? Questions about your possessions. Have you been stockpiling your stuff, chasing after more money and more possessions? You're like, Pastor, I can't afford to give to the church. I give to the Lord. I've got to save up for the kids' college. Oh, I must not have read that verse. You can't afford to give? Do you know how much you gave last year? Why, well, I, I don't know. Well, if you don't know how much you gave last year, I, I could suggest that you probably think you gave more than you did. You know, I don't know. I pulled out a couple bucks. Like, I was like, wow, please stop. George Washington's blinking because you're so stingy. He's like, I haven't seen light. Like, so really think about your giving and think, man, am I, could I live on less and give more? Well, I have to retire well. Well, how, how well? There's nothing wrong with saving up for retirement, but will you give out of some of that and be generous and ready to share? And again, you're like, it goes against our culture. Finally, and then we're going to listen to a testimony as we close. How are you doing with contentment? Oh, brother or Tom, not an issue. Is Jesus really enough? How about this? Are you content with your singleness? Now, that doesn't mean if you're single that stop wanting to get married. But, but, but do you understand that God, if God hasn't brought somebody to your life, it's not his time yet? He hasn't forgotten you? If you're married, are you content with your spouse? Ready? Newsflash. You and your spouse both have assets and liabilities. They have good qualities and bad qualities, and so do you. You choose what you want to focus on. You start focusing on their liabilities, and the devil goes, but if you were with them, they're so this, that, or that's a lie. It's nonsense. But that's how Satan draws us in, to covet what we don't have. So thank God for your spouse and recognize, yeah, they don't have it all together. Neither do I. And go home and forgive them and learn how to love them. You don't have to feel love for them. God doesn't say, love who you, or marry who you love. He says, learn how to love who you marry. Be content. How about with your, your health or your job or your circumstances? I don't know why I put this. Are you content with your church? No, I don't like how they do that. Well, we're not making you stay here. Um, but we want you to. <laughs> um, are you building on solid rock or sinking stand? What would happen if God took your job away, your health away? your spouse away, your grandkids away. I don't know. It's scary, isn't it? 
Are you living for godliness and what matters or pleasure? I'm going to ask Micah Van Horn to come up here as we close this morning. One of the things that's really helpful is, is to be reminded that there are others in more difficult circumstances than most of us are and to see how the grace of God has, has taught them contentment so that we can thank God for them. As Micah comes, a um, couple of things I want you to know. Michael or Micah um, will tell you how he ended up in a wheelchair. But I want you to listen to how God has worked in his life. And he had asked. I didn't ask him, could you give a testimony so this would be an illustration? He asked me, could I share this? This was before he even knew we were talking about this. But listen to his story. And I want to, want to ask, George Van Loo is going to come. He's going to read. But George has been visiting Micah on a regular basis. And if you have a little time, Micah pretty much is at home all day. If you'd like to drop by and visit him, I know that would be a blessing to him. He can't see real well, so... Um, as, a, as a result of, he'll tell you what happened, but um, if you wave to him or something, he doesn't wave back. It's not because he, he didn't diss you. He might not be able to see you. But George, come and listen to this very brief testimony as we close and think about having Jesus. That's what I really need. That's what matters in life. And I hope it'll inspire you. This is Micah's testimony and his words. He said, when I was a little boy, I remember being at my grandmom's house and seeing a replica of Jesus with thorns on his head. Seeing that made me realize the sacrifice Jesus made for me when he died on the cross. That's when I asked Jesus to come into my heart. Even though I went to church and Sunday school, I never really understood what true repentance excuse me, true repentance was so he says I grew up as a teenager and I fell away from my faith I got involved with the wrong people my life went in the wrong direction I suffered from addiction for a long time I overdosed and almost died if my brother hadn't found me in the bathroom, I wouldn't be here today. But God had a plan and a purpose for my life. When I had my foot surgery, the pastors and the elders prayed for me. They asked me what I would like them to pray for. I regret one thing that is I should have said how to serve Jesus better. To know the greatness of his love. I thank him every day for saving my life and for his grace and his mercy. Thank you, God, for the air that I breathe. I know what my purpose is. I want to go to nursing homes, and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, giving the residents hope and strength to live every day with Jesus in their lives. My desire is to pray more and to serve him. I need him to teach me how. Because of my addiction, I don't have the desire to serve Jesus like I do now. I was trapped by Satan. 
I lost, I was lost, but now I'm found. Matthew 7, 13, 14 says, Broad is a road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leadeth to life. I want to thank my mom and my dad for coming to the nursing home every day and sacrificing their lives. I wouldn't be the man I am today without their loving hearts and Christian spirit. You know better than I. He knows the way and I let, and I let go of the need to know why. He knows better than I. I take whatever he supplies because he knows better than I. Some say that I will never walk again, but I choose to be happy, to walk by faith, and to walk in the Spirit. The Father is with me always. Amen. He knows better than I do what I need. Some of you have lost your way, and Christ is calling you to himself. You need to repent like Micah did of your sin and go, Lord, I've been living for all the wrong stuff, but I want to give my life to Christ and be forgiven and follow him. And if you are a Christian, man, what a sobering reminder. When I hear that testimony, I just want to crawl in a hole of shame going, who am I to complain? But may God just use this and bless Micah and pray for him and all of us that we will be content with Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you. It's been awesome to be together and study your word, but to see that, Lord, no matter what our circumstances, through Christ, you can bring us joy and fulfillment, and we can live our lives for what matters. That's for you. So may we be different because your word powerfully changed our hearts. May our values and our lifestyle be profoundly impacted as we Seek to live for Jesus, for it's in his name we pray, amen. Be sure to encourage Micah, and if you have any questions or you need prayer or you want to find the Lord, I'll be here afterward. Have a great week. God bless you.